This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. The risk to health systems is that we feel like value-based care hasn't really moved very far. We're still talking about a lot of the same things. We can still stay in our fee-for-service track and continue to work that model. But if you look around you and see how many of the payers are amassing their own provider networks, the risk is that health systems are going to be left out and disintermediated from the whole process. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I am your host, Jamie Zage. In the work that I do at SG2, I continue to see the importance of value-based care as a way to drive changes in how we deliver health services. I thought it would be interesting to have a more detailed conversation on the state of value-based care, how it has evolved over the last few years, and why it's more important than ever to take value-based care to the next level. Who better to include in the conversation but Laura Jacobs, a strategic advisor for SG2 and an expert in value-based care. Laura, thank you for being with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Let's start with a brief introduction for our audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are so passionate about value-based care, why you've been spending so much of your career covering it. Absolutely. My career started with helping organizations create integrated delivery systems and organize physicians, particularly primary care physicians, into groups when managed care. That's what we called value-based care back in the day. When primary care physicians were organizing in order to take what then was PPO contracts and maybe the beginnings of HMO contracts, I really got to see the impact of the organization, the development and taking on risk, and the integration with health systems and how that impacted not only the delivery of care, but the individuals that are involved in the provision of care as well. That's taken me through a lot of iterations of consulting, not only helping organizations strategize and determine what brand of value-based care makes sense for them, if at all, and also thinking about once they're in it, how do you make sure that you're successful and perhaps change the way you're approaching it to make sure you're getting through all the aspects of care delivery and taking on risk. You've been at it for so long, this continued evolution and cycles. I know when we have talked in the past is that many individuals still think about value-based care as purely just risk contracting. But as you've just alluded to, there's a lot more to it. Can you talk about how you think about value-based care and how you describe it to others who are looking to get into this space? When you think about value-based care, the payment models and the contracts with payers tends to be the first thing you think about because that has ignited the response of providers in how we need to respond to those new kinds of incentives. The rationale about value-based care is that in order to succeed, I like to think of it in a few different buckets. There is the financial model, and you want to assure that when your organization is pursuing all these various changes, that it gets rewarded for doing that, that it doesn't end up in a payer's hand or just evaporates into the ether sphere. The payment model has to be incentivizing the right delivery product and delivery care system. That's just one component. Then there's how do we think about the market? In value-based care, organizations really think more prospectively about what are the population 
population's needs. In today's world, we think a lot about health equity. And in a value-based care world, that gets taken into account. How are we looking at that population? Where are their gaps in care? How are social determinants impacting their medical care? The approach to the market is different, and it's much more population-oriented, not waiting for a patient to come into our facility or make an appointment. The second component, and really critical, is the care delivery model. It's not just the episodic care that we think about, but value-based care incorporates how do we look at the needs of those patients. How do we make sure that they're getting the diagnostic tools that will prevent further illness? How are we organizing our care team to really incorporate social workers, nutritionists, other components of the care team? And then lastly, it's the relationship with consumers is different. Population health and value-based care has the opportunity to create greater stickiness to the market because you're not looking at the relationship from a visit to a visit or a hospital stay to a hospital stay. It's really about what are their needs, what are their family's needs as they go through their life. And so it's a longer-term relationship potentially, particularly if the opportunity is there for a health system. Sometimes it's harder for a payer because it may depend on employment relationships and so forth. But for a health system, it really has an opportunity to take on those longer-term consumer relationships. When I think about value-based care and where I intersect with it a lot in the work that I do at SG2, it really fits into that third one that you talked about, really how we deliver the care, that care redesign element. That's one of the things that caught my attention when we talked recently. Given today's workforce challenges, we are in a position where we have to start doing things differently just for sustainability. What have you seen in the value-based care world that maybe could be applied more broadly in terms of what some of those care redesign examples might be? When you think about care redesign, we think about it in all venues of care. If you start with the relationship of the patient with their primary care physician from the physician part of the world, there's really great opportunity to think about what we like to say is utilizing the care team so that everybody is functioning at the top of their license. What that means is physicians are doing the things that are optimizing their brain as a physician, and it's minimizing the tasks and the things that bug them the most, whether it's paperwork or time on a computer or doing things that a nurse might do. And likewise with nursing, are we helping them create greater satisfaction with their own professional performance by taking things off their plate? that a clinician licensed as a nurse shouldn't be doing. And so the cascade continues, and many of the models that have redesigned primary care are using non-licensed people much more effectively that can engage the patient or the consumer more effectively, stay on top of what their healthcare needs may be, whether that's, are they taking their medication? Are they eating? Are they making home visits and seeing what their living conditions are? All that redesign and using the example of primary care model really makes everybody feel better about their ability to impact care and generally improve satisfaction with the fact that one, they're part of a team, they're not trying to do this alone. And secondly, that together they're having a greater impact on that patient situation. 
Right. And probably virtual health comes into play there a little bit as well in terms of creating different types of efficiencies and connectivity to that patient. No question. The whole role of virtual health and using technology and artificial intelligence to take those tasks away that don't require A, the patient to come to a facility, or B, for members of the care team to do things that are repetitive and not really that rewarding. The ability to use technology smarter is also a key component of most care redesign projects or initiatives. We have a long ways to go there. For a lot of clinicians, we're still burdening them with more technology and not using technology to make their day easier. I would agree. Want to take a look at value-based care and what's been happening over the past couple of years and where you see it going. As you look back since 2019, how has value-based care adapted to this very dynamic situation we've been in over the last couple of years? And where do you see it going? Do you see it evolving or you just see it continuing to grow as we move forward? Throughout the last couple of years, we have to think about whose perspective are we taking when we think about value-based care and what its role is in the marketplace. The reason I say that is with the pandemic, most facilities really struggled with how do we just deal with the financial realities and the clinical crisis that many went through. What do we need to do now to make sure we're using staff to the most efficient way possible because we didn't have staff, people were out. And so there were a lot of components that we've just talked about, reengineering care, how do we use technology better, how do we engage virtual care. Many of those components were facilitated and accelerated because we had to. We had limited resources and we had very real clinical crises going on that we had to deal with. So we weren't necessarily managing things, thinking about it from a value-based care lens, but the care redesign was going forward nonetheless. If you think about that part of it, there's many of these components that still have progressed along. But then if you step back and say, where do we see value-based care compared to 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was first launched? And where do we think it is compared to that? If you think that that was 13 years ago, you look back and the things we're doing now, we're still organizing ACOs, we're still doing pay for performance, we're still wrestling with Medicare on what various payment models are going to make sense and which actually do impact cost and quality and which don't. You might think, we haven't really come very far. And in many ways, we haven't. But then if you look at the broader marketplace to say, what actions have payers taken or other employers taken to accelerate how they're experiencing value-based care? And you bring up examples like United Healthcare that has acquired and expanded their portfolio of all kinds of services that support value-based care from home care to providers to technology and so forth. That's accelerated. You have organizations, many of the other payers, so CVS, part of Aetna, acquiring Oak Street. So these multi-billion dollar acquisitions of payers and employers that are building their own essentially value-based care network is accelerated over the last couple of years. And the risk to health systems is that we feel like value-based care hasn't really moved very far. We're still talking about a lot of the same things. 
things. And so we can still stay in our fee-for-service track and continue to work that model. But if you look around you and see how many of the payers are amassing their own provider networks, the risk is that health systems are going to be left out and disintermediated from the whole process. You'll notice that many of these larger payers aren't acquiring hospitals because that's expensive. That's capital rich. That's very complicated. The risk to hospital-based health systems or health systems that have many assets that are devoted to delivering acute care or institutional-based care is that by not thinking about value-based care in this broader way, the risk is that you lose the market relevance, market dominance versus many of these other payers. That's a really interesting insight in terms of the payer component and how they're starting to almost amass their own networks to capture the benefit to them for value-based care. And we've been watching the movement around primary care in particular, whether it's the payers coming in or the third-party entities, these disruptors, and the questions are being asked as health systems, do we need to continue to employ primary care? Is that part of the equation or do you see that relationship with primary care? How does that need to evolve to support value-based care for those organizations? It's one that requires a lot of assessment, evaluation, and contemplation by health systems because primary care is really the cornerstone of value-based care. It's become and always has been critical for making sure care is coordinated, that the health of the individual is paramount and is really in the driver's seat for making sure that patient is getting the right care and the right team that's surrounding them. The question is, does that need to be owned by the health system or could that be contracted or partnered with by another entity? It's such an important part that for a health system to let go of that and tell somebody else, you deal with it, we can't continue to lose money on it. We'll just partner with whoever it is to do that for us. It's something to be considered depending on your situation as a health system, but I would just be extraordinarily cautious about it because that has the potential for accelerating the health system's positioning as just a hospital or just a set of acute care facilities or just a place to get procedures done. There are models where that could be partnered. They're almost thinking about it as a franchise. If a care model of an organization is particularly successful, could that be adopted and adapted to the health system's primary care network? My own opinion, and every situation is going to be a little different, but adapting and thinking about how partnerships might be applicable is one thing, but giving it up and seeding that cornerstone of value-based care to someone else is pretty risky. And that's been part of the conversations that we've been hearing as well, is that risk-benefit profile and how much are you really getting out of it today versus in the future. You can't just focus on today's piece. Another part of the conversation when we were talking about workforce and that care redesign piece and how things have evolved through the pandemic, just the world that I track and follow closely is post-acute as an example. And we know that's one of the highest variability of cost. It's been a focus area. The initiation of the ACOs was all about how do we improve those transitions between acute to post-acute. 
it's a very good point. The cornerstone of inpatient side of making those transitions effective is the highly engaged care management team. Those teams have been impacted by the labor shortage and stresses on nurses and just like everything else. That is a challenge. To me, it's looking back at that role and how do we optimize the care management, the case management team's ability to do their work using technology, using tools that will enable them to communicate with the hospitalists and others within the acute care setting to understand the patient's needs, using artificial intelligence to predict well, when does this, do we believe this patient's going to be discharged? There are a lot of the same similarities in how we think about care redesign in other venues of care, you're thinking about that from a care management standpoint too. And thinking about who are the post-acute providers that are our partners that will help us facilitate care? Who do we establish communication linkages with that maybe through technology, maybe through other means that will facilitate that care transition? Do we need to rethink what those care transitions are? Is it always a skilled nursing facility or is it home health or is it something else? Taking a hard look and assessing the role, the process, the tools, the team that care management team is currently using is really important, particularly when we think about many of our facilities are inpatient. Acute care facilities are still at capacity because of some of the reasons you've identified and because we have some very sick patients still. Absolutely. For organizations who want to advance their value-based care program, or maybe they're thinking it's time to get in on it. They're starting to see some movement in their market. What do you think are some good next steps for those organizations? First and foremost is to take an honest look at both their marketplace, really think about we have Medicare, we have Medicaid and commercial payers. Where are we in that spectrum of value-based care? I mean, dealing with Medicare alone, I say you're already in the value-based care business, even if you think about it as a DRG is sort of value-based. It's sort of our own risk model. And so really thinking about what the market is doing, how are you impacted by some of these external players? Is your primary care network impacted by what's gone on in the marketplace? That's the external view. Then the internal view is taking a look at some of the things we've just talked about. How robust is our primary care network? What are they doing? How could we optimize not only their financial positioning, just the impact that they're having on patients' health and managing the whole process of care? How are we organized to do that? The things we were talking about just a minute ago related to care management. It's really assessing, are we ready? Do we need to accelerate our readiness because of what we're seeing in the marketplace? I say honest look at the marketplace because I think a lot of health systems, a little bit of that frog in boiling water, like, well, we're still on fee-for-service, the contracts are still coming, but bit by bit, the increases are lower, the payers are looking to take on a little more risk or rewarding more on quality. So bit by bit, the success or the economics of the fee-for-service world is eroding and really understanding where that is and the financial impact of not addressing value-based care in a more focused way 
and having a strategy to deal with it that may be years long. It may not be, okay, we're going to take on risk or take downside risk next year. It may be we have a pathway that's going to take us into making sure that we are important in the marketplace and that we can be proactive with employers and with payers in our region so that we're not just price takers, we're really engaging them in the discussion about how we can impact cost and quality and health outcomes. You just solidified for me why it continues to be such an important part of our path forward in healthcare. This is about outcomes. It's about health systems maintaining a seat at the table in terms of what it looks like in the future and how they're going to be able to sustain what they do, especially for some of the highest risk populations. This has been a really interesting discussion, Laura. I thank you for your time today and sharing your insights and your expertise with us and our listeners and with me. And for those of our listeners, I appreciate your time and and look forward to seeing you again on the next SG2 Perspectives. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes. And you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.